0: Amen. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular as always. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 11. And I know why everyone's not here this week. Figured it out, because we're doing a full chapter today. I know, you guys are very excited. (laughs) Hey, I've been really nice about all this. We've been splitting up very... Very nice by splitting it up like chapters wise so um, but this one you just can 't split up chapter eleven it's just it just can 't be done it. It all flows so well together, um, and there 's a reason for it and we 're going to get into that reason now, so uh, again, if you have your Bibles, please open up to chapter eleven and before we begin, just a few thoughts on chapter Ten. Um, it was from there that we kind of saw. Uh, how God was going to use the Assyrians to judge his people and judge actually a lot of people. Um, However, there is one final hope, and that is that God was going to keep a remnant of the people who would be able to be spared. And we're going to talk more about that remnant and that future hope. So today, let's start with verses 1 and we'll go through verse 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness uh, the belt of his loins. So chapter 11 begins with a reflection. In chapter 6, Isaiah received the vision of God enthroned above all. Isaiah also received the word he was to proclaim to the people, and it was an overarching kind of um, thought, which is that much of it dealt with the people's hearts being hardened at the preaching of isaiah that they would receive judgment but also at the very end of that there is hope why is there hope because the sacred seed is in the stump here we learn about that seed and how a shoot comes from it not only a shoot but a branch with fruit as is often the case with isaiah this imagery is really about a person he is described as having the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would dwell on certain individuals. We can think of Moses, uh, Samson, David, the prophets. In some cases, such as Samson, it led to physical strength even, being able to do things which were otherwise inhuman. Later, when it came to the kings, such as David, it led to governing in a way which was good. Still, even David failed, and as did his lineage, as we have seen throughout Isaiah. Yet this individual will not fail, because the Spirit of the Lord will continually rest with him. As such, he leads in ways which are altogether different than the kings had, precisely because of the Spirit which is on him. The fear of the Lord, which is given by the Spirit, will be what keeps him. Indeed, whereas the kings had been individuals easily swayed by the rich and the mighty, this individual will be swayed by righteousness alone. He will not decide because of what he sees, per se. Instead, he will judge by what is good and right. He knows what is good and right because he fears God. And it is from God from which all goodness flows. As such, the poor will not be left without justice, but will be heard and cared for under his leadership. Whereas others needed a sword to bring his judgments, this individual will merely speak and the judgment will come. From what he says, he will overwhelm the wicked. One could say he speaks the truth regardless of what others around him would desire him to say. Indeed, righteousness and faithfulness are what will define him. Righteousness in seeking out what is right and just, faithfulness to God in whom he delights in. As such, this individual will be radically different than any other leaders or kings. Whereas the people had failed precisely because they were unrighteous and faithless, this individual is known by seeking righteousness and faithfulness. Now we come to verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurry or hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. So in these verses, actually, let's just stop right there. Everyone remember that question we had about uh, where does that, (laughs) everyone's remembering, no, we went over this a little bit. Um, We're going to go more in depth this time. We had that question about where does it say that the lion shall lay down with the lamb? Um, Technically, it doesn't. Anyway, in these verses, we have two types. The one type is the predator, and the other type is the prey. As such, there are a number of ways to interpret the verses as they are described. Because of this, we will focus on the main three ways to interpret it. The first way is literal. In this way, each of the animals and people represented will have peace... The wolf and the lamb will literally walk side by side, just as the leopard will lie down literally with the young goat. In other words, the predator's natures must be changed or altered so that they will be at peace with those whom they had once hunted, in particular within the animal kingdom, since this is the focus. Another way to look at this, however, is spiritually. In this sense, the predators and the prey are individuals. Instead of there being individuals who seek to ravage others, there will be peace among all people. Not only with individuals in their relationship with each other, but also individuals in relationship with themselves, because as we know, we're all broken. So the brokenness within us, we won't be fighting ourselves anymore. The third view is a figurative view. In this sense, the whole is the point. What do we notice? Peace. Peace where there was once no peace. In this sense, it is all meant to be taken as a way to show that with this king, there will be a difference in the world. Not something small or insignificant, but a lasting peace over the whole earth. Um, All right, so now if you want to know which interpretation I hold to, you'll have to ask it. There in questions and answers. I'm not going to give my personal opinion. Um, But still... Those are the three interpretations, and you're within orthodoxy, if you believe any one of those. So there's that. So all of this, though, is really seen in the concept of the child. Our natural reaction to seeing a child in a dangerous situation is to scoop them up and take care of them. Instead of this, however, there will be no need to scoop them up because they will not be in any harm. Indeed, a child could lead the wolf, the leopard, and the lion. Likewise, a mere infant can peacefully play near the snake's pit and still will be unharmed. Clearly, the peace which will come is significant. Instead of there being needless death and sorrow, there will be life and peace. The whole earth will live in the knowledge of the Lord, which comes from this person on whom the Spirit rests. And that's what it's all leading back to. It's going back to that person. Who is that person? So now we come to verses 10 and 11. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious in that day the lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from assyria from egypt from pathros um, from kush from elam from shinar from hamath and from the coastlands of the sea so there's a break if you notice in the poetry Um, this break is to prose, to further establish who this individual is. Previously, we had seen that the seed was in the stump um, of Jesse. Now we find it is not only in the stump, but the root. He who has established Jesse, and therefore David, will be the one on whom all the nations put their trust and their rest. This will lead to those who were once lost to be brought back into the fold. Assyria and Egypt were the two major powers during the time of Isaiah when he was writing and, or in his ministry. And one could say that the whole known world at the time kind of rested against these two great powers. As such, when Isaiah described this from Assyria to Egypt, Pathos, all this, he is indicating the whole world. He will bring the remnant back despite their deserving of judgment. Um, that's what God's going to do. From the whole of the earth will come these people. One commentator I think puts it well. Um, and I think this was Oswald. Moreover, the true display of sovereignty is in redemption. Anyone can destroy, but who can give life again? This is God's work, and we see the difference. Um, God's going to bring back people, whereas Assyria could only destroy, Um, and that's such a beautiful thought to me. Now we're going to come to the end of the chapter, verses 12 through 16. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out of their hand against Edom and Moab. And the Ammonites shall shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead his people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt." Alrighty, so verse twelve reemphasizes what we've just seen. Those belonging to God will be returned to him. The remnant will be brought out of the nations and will be brought back. We notice it is God's call which does this. An important reminder that it is God who is working these things into existence. From this, the relationships between the brothers will be restored. Whereas Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah, the southern kingdom, were often pitted against each other. Through God, they will be restored to their rightful place as brothers. The jealousy and the harassment, which they both mutually shared with one another throughout their existence, will no longer be a thing. As such, God will subjugate their enemies. From an ancient perspective, their enemies are his enemies since they are his people. Ultimately, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, they will all fall under their sway, which is really God's sway. Ultimately, this leads to peace for both God's people, but also leads to peace for the pagan nations. Once they are subjected to the Lord, then there will be no reason to fight amongst each other anymore. Again, the point is there will be peace where there once was no peace to be seen. Isaiah concludes with imagery from the Exodus. Just as God had brought his people through the Exodus, so he will bring them to himself again. God will make a way where there was no way before. Whereas the people had placed their trust and their faith in themselves or other nations, it is only through God true redemption and salvation can come. As such, the remnant will come home precisely because God will will lead them home. Alrighty. So the main point of these verses are to give us a semblance of the messianic age and reign. In this, we find an individual whom the spirit of God dwells, who judges rightly, and who brings about peace in a world where there is so little peace. Ultimately, God will bring his remnant back, not by their strength, but by his own strength. Um, And again, from this will be peace where there once was none. All right. So throughout Isaiah's ministry, we have seen what the people look like apart from God. Instead of being loving and gracious and kind, the people have been the exact opposite. Instead of taking care of the oppressed and the marginalized and giving them justice, they have been subjected to even worse treatment by the people. Instead of seeking justice, the people have sought injustice. Instead of morality, they have sought immorality. And instead of God, they have sought self. This is no different than what we have seen elsewhere in the scriptures, is it? The further humanity gets from God, the further into darkness they descend. It is true of individuals, as we remember with Cain, as well as with nations, as we see with the people of God in these chapters even. It is a common theme. Turn away from God and know the reality of unrighteousness and brokenness within society and self. Yet the people, they continue to do just that. They continue to turn towards sinful behavior instead of the God who was there from the beginning. As such, anarchy reigns as morality and righteousness are turned on their heads. All in all, it leads to a people who are in darkness. The light they had was diminished. The light that is God. They could try to claim it was from other means, but the truth is their own hands have brought about their own destruction because they keep choosing something else. In all truth, this could be seen... And said of our own society as well. It isn't as though the ancients were the only ones who were capable of falling into sin. Any culture, any nation is capable of unrighteousness, injustice, and faithlessness. Any people can easily fall into these things because it is who we are apart from God. Thus any society which does not seek God will ultimately fall to ruin because there is no definition of what is good for such a society. One could say that this should cause us some concern. If it is true, then what hope do we have? Sin is so prevalent in our midst. Sexual immorality is just as prevalent as the time of the Greeks and the Romans. We justify ourselves and our behaviors, leading us to accept immoral actions as normative. We are plagued with failings in society. Unable to love our neighbors and certainly not love our God with all of who we are. Our congregations are slowly dying, and our society is collapsing, it seems, around us. What hope can be found? Thanks be to God, there is hope. In this passage in Isaiah, we find the reason for our hope. Jesse has a seed, even further, a root. And from this comes hope for the people of Israel, and also hope for all people. Because it will be this individual who will be righteous and faithful. This individual will have wisdom and knowledge. They will fear the Lord and from them will come redemption for the remnant for those who believe. We can give thanks because we know that this individual has come. When we read about this passage, it is clear to us that Jesus Christ was the one whom Isaiah had prophesied about. We find all that was prophesied about in the person of Jesus Christ. How do we know? Consider consider some of the following. We are told in That the spirit would rest upon this person. We find in Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God would rest upon this individual. We are told the person on whom the Spirit dwells will have wisdom, counsel, knowledge, and understanding. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with these words, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. And then we have the whole Sermon on the Mount, two chapters. Now, how does the Sermon on the Mount end? We found out in chapter 7, where we are told, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He had completely brought wisdom, knowledge, counsel, and understanding. We are told the person would judge the poor rightly. Remember what occurred during Jesus' ministry. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You can tell John the Baptist was a little depressed. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We are told that the person would destroy his opponents with words. Remember Jesus Christ in Mark 12. We will read three different groups to come question him. The first was, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the first ones and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Then the second one, the Sadducees, came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, and then finally in verse 28, we have the scribes. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them all, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now Jesus, he does answer every one of their questions. And in the ending of the questioning, you know what happens in verse 34? After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In regards to righteousness and his enemies, we remember in Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounces woes against his enemies. There were seven woes pronounced against them. Why? Because as verse 12 tells us, twelve um, in that same chapter, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Finally, in regards to fear of the Lord, we see two aspects of this in Jesus' life. The first is in Christ's teachings in Luke twelve four through 5 where we read, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you are to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, um, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, fear God. Fear God. Nothing else should be worthy of our fear. And then the second is this, in his obedience to the Father. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So it is, after we've done this kind of long discussion about who Christ is, we fully understand that the person really has come. The one who has come is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Through him we find the prophecies being fulfilled. We rejoice knowing this is the case. For in Christ has come a ruler who is truly worthy of ruling. We find a sovereign who is good, wise, filled with understanding and compassionate. Yet we also find one who is just. Judging between good and bad, right and wrong. And subjugating his enemies with his word alone. Yet this leads us to the same problem we find for Isaiah, doesn't it? Isaiah proclaimed this and understood there would come a day in which the king would arrive. But it was a long way off from him. It would still take hundreds of years before Christ came. In the same time, we are in a waiting period ourselves. We have been given the word, just as Isaiah has, But the word has been made flesh and and whose life was given so that we may receive life. The word was given and he reigns. But we are still eagerly awaiting the complete fulfillment of the whole prophecy in which the whole world will fall under his sovereignty. As such, we who have been called into the kingdom cannot be led astray by our weaknesses. For we have been called to proclaim the message of the gospel. To live in the kingdom here and now. We know the kingdom has dawned and we are blessed to be members of that kingdom. Because of this it is our responsibility to seek justice, righteousness and faithfulness now. Because we know Christ does reign. If his kingdom is built upon these things then it is our responsibility to seek these things as we live. While this world will never attain perfection until death has been fully conquered, that does not give us an excuse to not live in the reality of the kingdom which we now belong. Because if we do believe in Christ, then we are part of the kingdom. If we are part of the kingdom, then what fear should we have? The greatest fear we should have is fear of the Lord, knowing that God is worthy of our fear. Such a fear leads to godliness, holiness, and righteousness. Fear of the world, however, leads only to destruction. If Christ reigns, then that means that a promise has been fulfilled. He has brought us redemption from sin. If this is the case, then we should know that no matter the circumstances, we are in the greatest possible good. Even if we should face adversity, even if we should face pain, even if our hearts should shake, We will survive, knowing that just as God provided us salvation through Christ, so the future is secured. We see the kind of future we have as we experience the kingdom here and now. In Christ, there really is peace already. We have peace with our God through Christ. We have peace with each other, different races, different genders. All having peace through the blood of Christ. We have a foretaste of what is to come as we congregate together knowing the peace of God is with each of us individually as well as corporately for all who call upon his name. Imagine now that peace spread over the whole world. That is what is going to happen. That's what we're going to experience when the Savior comes again. Thus, we eagerly await his coming because we know that when he does, there will be an everlasting peace which cannot be extinguished. We seek it all here and now with every step we take, but our hope is always bound to the person of Christ who has accomplished the impossible, death from life. Life from death. (laughs) So the tension is real for us. We are in a place where we have attained so much But we also live in a place where there is so much more yet to come. Just as it was for Isaiah, he prophesied what was to occur. We have experienced some of it, but not all of it. The sum of it we have experienced gives us the fortitude to keep going, just as it was for Isaiah. We may not have had a vision of God seated high as Isaiah did, but we have experienced Christ. And that experience is what transforms us to live according uh, to him. For that is the truth of the matter. In this in-between time, we have been granted the Holy Spirit. He leads us evermore more into godliness. The same Spirit which was on Christ is also on us if we should believe. It is through Christ that this is accomplished and it is through His Spirit we move and have our being. Ultimately, all of this should be encouraging to us. We were once in darkness. We were once lost among the nations. Yet God called us to Himself. Said another way, God has called each of us home. The dawn has arrived to shatter our darkness. What more can we do other than to seek obedience to the one who calls us, who redeems us, who transforms us by his great power? As we live then, let us live for his glory. With the choices we make, let us seek to honor him who reigns. Let us also, in the midst of our trials and struggles, not forget what has been done. And because of what has been done, let us continue to hold fast to the hope of the future. Because we know in Christ there is a future for us. A future which is wrought of all good things, flowing from God himself. Now naturally, all this leads us to the gospel. Um, And and in this, you see the gospel because I think you clearly see the person of Jesus Christ here in Isaiah 11. I don't see how you don't see it, um, if if you don't. But I think we do see it. And I think we know it because whenever we think of Christ, everything described, it's just him. It's who he is in his personhood. And we experience his personhood by faith. Um, And so the gospel is here. The gospel is definitely in this passage. But the gospel begins with our origins. We are all created in the image of God. And because of that, we all have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. And this is so important in our age today. Because there are people out there who want to take that away. There are people out there who want to say, well, your race is better than my race. Or there are those who want to say, well, your race is better than my race. And they're always in conflict. But the truth is, we're all made in God's image. And all races and all people groups all have that image of God on them. We're all equal in that capacity. There's no one better than anyone else in that way. And the problem is, the reason why there's so much tension in our world is because of sin. Sin causes us to live lifestyles which cause us to want to have domination, to want to oppress, to want to have authority over other people in a way which is terrible and just exploits. Not to say all authority is bad. There's good authority too. But the problem is, is that sin causes even the good things of let's say authority to be turned over on its head. So that way those who have authority end up abusing it. And then when you also take in the fact that we're sinners. That we all lie, we cheat, we steal. Every single one of us has fallen so far from grace. We're all worthy of judgment. And so the question is what can be done for this? What can you and I do? And the answer is that we can do nothing about it because we are guilty already. You can't go to a courtroom after you've committed a crime and say, well, I'm changed now. You've still committed the crime. And so something has to be done apart from us and something is done apart from us. And that's the person of Jesus Christ has come. He has come and he takes away our debt through his life, death, and resurrection, and time, space, history, and flesh. It's not that God simply waves his hand and says, all is forgiven of you. Christ steps in and takes our guilt. Christ steps in and takes the punishment. And so it is from this person who was so perfect in all of his ways, who we go over and we look at and we think, here is a brilliant, moral, righteous man He dies. But it's in his death redemption comes for people like us who are worthy of judgment. And now he reigns. We remember in Acts, as Stephen was martyred, he looked up in the vision. What did he see? The Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He reigns. And we have hope because he reigns. Because He was raised from the dead. We have hope for our future as well. And that leads to glory. For those who believe. He has called us. From the nations. Into the faith. And we can be changed and transformed because of that. We don't have to live in darkness. Light has truly come. So. So. As we continue to live and as we continue to have our being, let us continue to seek God because he has proven himself over and over and over again to be faithful to his word. Let us seek faithfulness as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we read over the prophets who proclaimed your word, let us also seek to rejoice in the fact that your son has come, that the king has come, that the one on whom the spirit rests has come. And Lord you have called us from all nations. And you have brought us back home. And just as you proclaimed that Ephraim and Israel. These two brothers would have no longer have enmity between each other. So we who were once so different from one another. No longer have enmity. but We have peace. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to allow this peace to reign. We ask that we would seek your righteousness, your glory, that we would seek to only honor you above all because we know that in honoring you, there is truly change that can happen in this world for good because you are good. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.